Welcome to our continuing uh, WIM Safe Harbors Conference. I'm Leslie Vernelson. I'm the Interim Director of the Center for Theology, Women, and Gender here at Princeton Seminary. And I am honored to introduce to you our second keynoter, the Reverend, Reverend Dr. Kimberly Wagner. Um, and hello to those who are joining us virtually and also welcome, of course, those who are here in person. So the Reverend Dr. Kimberly Wagner serves as the Assistant Professor of Preaching at Princeton Theological Seminary. As of very recently, we're so excited to welcome you this year. Uh, she has a BS in Secondary Life Science Education from Miami University, Ohio, um, an MDiv from the Candler School of Theology at Emory University, and her PhD from the GDR of Religion at Emory University. Though she has served among the Lutherans and was educated among United Methodists, Dr. Wagner is ordained as a Minister of Word and Sacrament in the PCUSA. Previous experience on the pastoral staff of a PCUSA congregation in Virginia helps fuel and inform her present scholarship and teaching. She is passionate about supporting students' formation and helping clergy and communities navigate the realities of an ever-changing world and church. Her current writing and work focus on preaching and ministry in the midst and wake of trauma, particularly thinking about collective trauma, the role of the preacher, and resources of our scriptures and faith to respond to these moments. Dr. Wagner's very recent book, Fractured Ground, Preaching in the Wake of Mass Trauma, offers guidance for preaching in the aftermath of communal trauma, including mass violence, natural disasters, and public health crises. And I also have Dr. Wagner's permission to tell you it has one picture and two diagrams. So, <laughs> which can be hard to get in with a publisher. So, hard fought picture and diagrams. <laughs> And with that, I'm going to turn you over to Dr. Wagner. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much uh, for, for this welcome, for um, inviting me to be a part of this wonderful conference. Special thanks to Leslie, to Mary Beth, for all of their uh, work in coordinating and bringing me here. So today, um, so, so let me start with yesterday, uh, we had the joy of... Uh, uh, receiving a lecture from the Reverend Dr. Martha Simmons on moods and methods, right, for cultivating safe harbors. And I want to kind of, uh, and I loved her approach. It was a brilliant lecture. If you didn't get to see it, watch it. Um, I loved her approach to thinking about safe harbors and how to cultivate them, especially as women in ministry. I want to take kind of the other approach. And that is that I want to say that I think we can only cultivate safe harbors for ourselves and even for our communities if we actually know what the storm is that we're facing, right? I have a friend who is a clergywoman and she said to me one day, if somebody tells me to get a pedicure, take a bath or take a day off one more time, I'm gonna lose it, right? Now don't get me wrong, I love a bath, I love a pedicure and please give me a day off, right? But the problem is, is that's not answering the actual storms that we are facing in ministry. And so the way I want to approach today is to think, oh, I left my clicker over here. I, I promise I'm coming back online, people. There we go. Um, I want to think about understanding the current state of ministry and these days in ministry through the lens of trauma. 
And I want to be clear, trauma is not the only lens by which we can understand what is going on in our world and in our communities. However, I think it is a really helpful lens. Um, and so that's the lens I kind of want to offer today as we think about and move towards thinking about what would it mean then in this current storm, in these current circumstances, to cultivate, to build out safe harbors. Um, I come at this work um, on trauma, and thank you, Leslie, for giving the book a plug. Um, it just came out officially January 3rd, so it is brand new. Um, but And it is available on ebook, if you care for that. Um, but uh, part of the work that I do is really helping to think about what is it that is happening in our communities, how can we understand what we're experiencing, and then how do we best respond to it? And one of the responses is about what it does it mean to cultivate safe harbors. I come at this work um, both as a pastor and as an academic. Uh, for many years, I served at a church in Virginia that had a lot of trauma. Trauma that happened while I was there and trauma that happened well, traumatic realities that happened well before I got there but impacted my present ministry. And so a lot of the work that I do comes from my uh, pastoral work. And so I hope as we work through this stuff together, you'll see both the kind of academic and pastoral side to this work. Sound good? All right, and you online? I hope you're nodding. <laughs> so the first thing I wanna offer is of course a content warning and invitation to self-care to both those of you in the room and those of you online. We are going to talk about trauma. Uh, we're going to talk about things like mass shootings, traumatic loss, natural disasters, uh, the pandemic, uh, health crises. And these are hard topics. I don't want to pretend that they aren't. And so I want to invite you to pay attention to your bodies, pay attention to your, to your emotions, to your heart rate. Um, if you need to step away, please do. Um, if you need to turn off the screen, please do. Uh, those of you in the room, if you need to leave and come back or not come back, please know um, I am not offended and I understand and my priority is your self-care um, as we talk about these topics and as stuff comes up. All right. So the first thing I think we need to do if we're going to understand what's going on right now through the lens of trauma is define this word trauma. Now, it is really hard to define. And it's really hard to define for four distinct reasons. The first is it is often used as a colloquial term, right? I ran out of coffee this morning. It was so traumatic. That's not actually trauma, right? But we've started to appropriate that word to, uh, as emphasis, but also, and hyperbole, but also to talk about things that are hard or uncomfortable. Right, that anything that's hard or uncomfortable, we all of a sudden throw the label of trauma on. It's become a really hot word, um, especially on social media. So many people claiming to be trauma experts. Or um, I saw a BuzzFeed style quiz that says, what your personality says about how you handle trauma. No, make it stop. <laughs> that's not trauma, right? So part of the challenge of defining it is it's got this kind of colloquialism that we use it for. But even when we define it uh, precisely and well, it, it becomes a catch-all term for a multiple range of experience. Everything from an experience of mass violence to racism and white supremacy to traumatic illness, death, and loss. 
right? And so this broad range of experiences that we all title as traumatic and causing trauma. And so trauma becomes hard to define because it is describing the subjective experience to all of these different things. The third reason I think it's really hard to define is because we often conflate trauma and the traumatic event. And even people who write about trauma well sometimes do this, and so this is a Kim Wagner pet peeve. And let me explain why, because I think it really matters, especially in ministry, to hold these separate. A traumatic event is the thing that happens that has the potential to cause trauma. Trauma is the subjective experience of that event. And it's important to hold those separate for two reasons, I think. The first is because Tra the traumatic event has a beginning, a middle, and some kind of end or resolution usually. The experience of trauma is that which lingers. And sometimes individuals and communities cannot even begin to conceive of their trauma until there is a certain sense of safety that the event has ended or has at least had some kind of resolution. Right? So one of the things why that's really important in our ministries and in understanding what's going on in our communities is because we don't want to assume that just because the event is over, everyone's fine. We're seeing this a lot in churches continuing to wrestle with the trauma of the pandemic. Right? We are back together. We're meeting in person. We get to be in a conference in a room together. Right? Yet the trauma of that experience, the traumas that came up through that experience are still very much alive and active. And so to assume that just because there is some kind of calm in the pandemic, as I'll call it now, because I was reading all about the new variant this morning, um, that somehow we're fine. The other thing, the other reason why I think it's really important to hold apart the traumatic event from the experience of trauma is because a bunch of people can, and communities even, can experience the same traumatic event and express different levels and intensities of trauma. And there is this assumption that we want there to be formulas, right, for this. We want to say, if you experience A, your reaction will be B. But the reality is, is that we can all experience the same event and come away with different experiences of trauma. Example, um, I was in, when I was a science teacher back in my first life, um, I was in a five-car pileup. I was in car number four or five on my way to school. And car was totaled, was blessed enough to walk away with no injuries. Actually, everyone was pretty much okay. Uh, physically, all the cars were, were damaged or ruined. Um, about six months later, we were all called to court. Uh, to, because, you know, the insurance companies wanted to have a conversation. And uh, we'll just say it that way. And, uh, and the, uh, I, I remember encountering these other drivers. For me, that experience was scary, inconvenient, difficult, but it didn't really change, it wasn't really super traumatic to me. But for some folks in that accident, they had a hard time getting back behind the wheel or driving on a highway, or driving on that particular highway. And the recognition that that one accident could be traumatic to differing degrees for all five of these drivers. Does that make some sense? All right. The last reason why I think it's really hard to define trauma 
is the actual nature of trauma. Remember, we talked about trauma being this subjective experience, right, of an event. But it is an experience that, that by its very nature disconnects us from our capacity to make sense of it. Kathy Carruth talks about that we can only understand and know trauma in the gaps of our experience. The very things that we can't grasp, we can't make sense of, that's trauma. And so to define that thing that we can't get our arms around gets really, really hard. I'm gonna try anyway. And I'm gonna offer you what I'm calling my working definition. Now, full disclosure, this to me was the hardest thing about the book, because I had to put it in print. At some point, it could no longer be a working definition. It had to be in print. So here's the one that is in print, I believe. Yes, this is the one. And um, so this is my definition of trauma. You will read a million other good ones, um, but this one is, for me, most helpful, especially as we think about communal care and pastoral self-care um, in trauma. So I argue that trauma is a blow or wounding of the mind, body, and spirit self. And by this, I mean the whole self all at once. We may experience trauma more psychologically. We may be pushing it away psychologically and experiencing it in our bodies, right, in our spirits, but it's happening at all our levels. Trauma is a fully embodied experience. So trauma is a blow or wounding of the mind, body, and spirit self. And with spirit self here, I'm thinking of that beautiful Hebrew word nefesh, right, the full self, the, the psyche. Um, and it occurs when a destructive experience or event exceeds a person's or community's resources to process or assimilate the experience into preconceived frameworks of understanding. Let's break that down. <laughs> this is the academic portion, right? Um, one uh, way to think about this narratively, we're all preachers, we all like some narratives. Um, one way to think about this narratively is that we tell all these kind of stories, right? About our lives, our world, our community, God, right? And if we have all these stories that help us make sense of the world, when a traumatic event happens, that trauma can't find a home in those stories. That we can't assimilate it, we can't understand it, we can't make sense of it, given the context of the stories that we have been working with. Does that make some sense? Awesome. And so what happens is when we don't have the resources to make sense of it, then we end up with these fragments of experience these fragments of traumatic experience that are gonna continually try to find their way in, right, to our stories, to our psyche, to our understanding. And they will always kind of live outside of our capacity to fully make sense of them. Questions, I wanna pause here. Either it's clear as, clear as day or completely overwhelming, so I'm gonna keep going. <laughs> yeah, question. community has had multiple traumatic events, like multiple mass shootings, yeah. that we sort of get used to it because yes. we now have a framed... That's a great question. The que for, for those and playing in the at-home game, um, the question was great was, is this why we... Um, when in a community experiences multiple events, like multiple mass shootings, we start to normalize it. There's two reasons. One is we start to tell a narrative that includes 
that uh, traumatic reality. The other is that sometimes it becomes so overwhelming, we shut down our capacity to worry about that which is uh, beyond our capacity to make sense of. And so there's a little of both happening um, in these communities they're experiencing. And we'll talk a little bit later about communities that experience multiple layers of traumatic realities, right? So, oh yes, the corner, sorry. Um, it's kind of a slide back, but related. Yes. Uh, you talked about uh, the distinction between traumatic event and trauma, and that the trauma is a, is a subjective. Mm -hmm. But when communities, is it still subjective when a full community? Or it's a great question. So is, is yeah, absolutely. And can you hang on to that question? Because we're going to talk about collective trauma in a little more detail. The question was great. It was about, does that subjective experience apply to a community? The short answer is yes. And what ends up happening is you have individuals with their subjective experience of the event, and then the collective has their own sub subjective experience as a collective, and those two interact. So we'll get to that in a second. Great questions. I want to talk briefly, I think, about why that hangout. That's nice, cute. Um, <laughs> I love when PowerPoint tricks me. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the impacts of trauma, because the definition's great. But what really matters to us as leaders, as we think about cultivating safe harbors for ourselves and for our communities, is what does this do to us? Right? What does trauma do to us? And the first major impact is a crisis of time. A crisis of time. If the traumatic experience can't make sense, can't be made sense of in the present moment, it begins to become an eternal present because it continually can't find a home in the chronology of our stories. And because it becomes an eternal present, it scrambles the relationship between past, present, and future. Put another way, the past we lived did not lead to the present we expected, and therefore, it is almost impossible to imagine a future. Right? There's a great scholar, Robert, St Robert Stollero, who uses an image from Harry Potter. Any Harry Potter people out there? Um, and he uses the image of a port key. Now, if you don't know what that is, let me explain. A port key is simply a everyday object that is magically uh, has has a has a magic spell put over it that when you touch it, you are transported to somewhere else. It's I, why we have not created that technology yet, especially with airplane travel, I'm still not sure. But he talks about that because of this crisis of time, when certain things are touched, whether that's sensations, we call them triggers sometimes, whether that is emotions, places, locations, smells, the minute we touch them, we are transported right back to the traumatic experience, either visually in what we call flashbacks or even just emotionally right, emotionally, sensationally, um, that we are transported back. And every time that happens, time gets scrambled, right? Because all of a sudden our present is something that happened in the past, but it feels more present than the present we are in. So the, f yeah, I, I don't know if I can, that, that, that when it transfers us to the past, that past becomes present and feels more present than the actual present we are in. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that first scramble is a crisis of time. The second thing that happens is a crisis of coherence. A crisis of coherence. That our world and our story no longer hold together. 
Another way to think about it, to use my little arm image here, is if the stories are trying to break in, right, to our narratives, if these, these experiences are trying to find a home in our narrative, not only are they not finding a home, in pecking away at trying to find a spot, it begins to break our stories apart. Right? That things no longer hold together. That the stories I used to navigate the world safely and well no longer feel safe or dependable. Right? And so our world is no longer comprehensible. It doesn't make cognitive sense. Um, it no longer feels these stories, the ways we navigated the world, our values even, may no longer feel safe or helpful. Because if they didn't keep us safe through that experience, are they, can they keep us safe now? And the third one, which I think becomes particularly critical for us as, as, as ministerial leaders, as theologians, is that oftentimes this lack of comprehensibility leads to a loss of sense of meaning. If this story doesn't hold together anymore, if it's no longer feeling helpful anymore, is it worth preserving or is it even worth rebuilding it? And there's a loss of meaning. And this is where we talk about things like crisis of faith. Right? There's lots of everyday meaning, right? That I don't know if I can trust myself behind the, the wheel of a car again, right? But then there's losses of existential meaning, sense of purpose, relationship with God, relationship with community and others. Are we good? All right. And this happens, and here we go. This is where it gets complicated, friends. This happens at both the individual and collective or communal level. And it turns out um, there's a great uh, handful of scholars, but really, uh, who talk about collective trauma and what happens at a communal level. And the thing is, is that we have all these different people having subjective experiences of the traumatic event, right? Having their own crises of time and coherence. But at the same time, especially when we're talking about something like mass trauma, something that impacts large communities at once, you have collective trauma happening too. And collective trauma is different from and more than simply the addition of all the individual traumas. One plus one does not equal two. It's one plus one plus one plus one plus one plus this. And they feed each other, of course, right? They're going to feed each other. But the community also has a subjective experience of the traumatic event as a collective. And it will sometimes be in conflict with their individual experiences of trauma. It will sometimes jive with them. And it will sometimes be totally separate. In fact, um, there are studies that say if people are gone during a traumatic event in their community and come back and the community is experiencing trauma, though they may not have individually experienced it, they are going to show symptoms of that trauma because of the collective trauma. Right, so collective trauma is, is another entity we have to deal with. Another entity we have to think about. I don't wanna say deal with. But it leads to a crisis of time even in community, right? So trauma becomes this eternal present and the community, it disrupts the past, the present, and the future. We see this a lot of times when it disorients communal activities and relationships. That all of a sudden who is in and who is out gets shifted because Time is scrambled. There's also a sense that the trauma becomes a sort of pervasive shadow over everything that the community does. And it will revisit like a port key in unexpected times and places and ways, and it will bring people right back. 
whether it is another event that feels very familiar, such as a, you know, a community that has experienced a mass shooting, witnessing another mass shooting on TV, whether it is just the idea of, um, I know I have a friend who is in a rebuilt um, building after her church experienced uh, all-consuming fire. And she said, it's funny when this comes up, it's like we move right back to that moment where every time I pull out the communion um, chalice, because that was one of the only things saved out of the fire. Right? At time, she said, it almost feels like we get transported as a community back, but then that creates somewhat of a scramble, right? And especially for those who are new to the community, who didn't come until after the new building was built. The third way we see a crisis of time in community is that it can be a sticking point in the story and in the identity of the community, that they have a hard time remembering what was before or remembering it accurately. We're going to talk about that a little later. And so the scramble of time in community, I know you all have experienced it. I don't know about you. Um, I still think it's March 2020. <laughs> Right? There's a blur that happens. And this is happening not only individually, but in our communities. And um, I have friends who jokingly, well, semi-jokingly, talk about the before times, being that before the pandemic, and now. Right? And so even that idea of a strict line of before and after scrambles time for communities and creates these kind of disruptions that, 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 that can cause this kind of crisis of time. There's also a crisis of coherence. And in this crisis of coherence, in communities, those foundational stories that we once told that helped us make sense of everything, about who we were as a community, our founding, even our biblical stories, unfortunately, they may no longer serve in the same way to help secure us or to give us meaning or to give us identity. There's also, when there is a crisis of community, or of, of um, I'm sorry, of comprehensibility uh, is a loss of meaningful rhythms. Those things that once felt meaningful before may not feel meaningful at all or in the same way. Let me give you an example. I was serving, before I came to PTS, um, I was serving up at the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. I was there, uh, I got to work there for, I think it was 18 months before the pandemic hit. And I remember, you know, doing a lot of ministry with students, helping them journey through this experience of isolation and things like that. And I will never forget the first chapel service we had back together. We met outside in the little courtyard and we were going to have communion for the first time. And I remember a handful of students coming up to me and saying, I am so excited. We're going to get to have communion together again. Like, this is so exciting and it's going to feel like we're, we're really back. Like it's gonna feel like we're a community. So we have the service, we have communion, it's lovely, it's great. And the service finishes, we're all greeting each other and I turn around and I see two of these students who are so excited sitting in the back in tears, in absolute tears. And so my first assumption is they were just really moved by this experience. So I went back and I sat with them and you know, sat with them for a minute and then said, you know, hey, how y'all doing? And she looked up and she said to me, Dr. Wagner, it wasn't the same. I thought it would feel joyful and good. Instead, all I noticed were the masks and the gloves, and it didn't feel like communion, even though I know it was. And those words of institution, they felt really hollow, right? There's a loss of, of comprehensibility, 
right? That's those patterns, those stories, those traditions don't hold in the same way. And that doesn't mean they become worthless. Let me be really clear. Those rituals still matter, but they may matter in new ways. They may take on new meaning, new form. When there's a loss of comprehensibility, the values of the community are often thrown into question. And we know this, right? We know that the ways we, we, we think about um, what is important in the church often falls apart. And finally, communities, if there is a loss of comprehensibility, no longer feel like safe or dependable locations of security, right? We no longer, if everything's feeling incomprehensible, right, um, at that level, then we no longer feel like our community maybe can hold us. And there's a sense of questioning whether or not this community is meaningful, worth keeping, worth staying with. It leads us to question whether the stories and the values that they've told us are, are good or good enough, right, to secure us. And it's going to make us question whether or not the stories that we've been told are safe and helpful to help us navigate not only the present world, but the future. Are we good? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, this is a great question. Could this be why churches are empty? And the answer is yes. I think anytime we go through a traumatic experience, it leads to us feeling that collective trauma and the individual trauma that often throws into questions those patterns and ways of being. This is also, I think, one of the explanations for the great resignation, right? That we start to question when those stories no longer hold up we begin to question them and their value. Now, the good news is, I don't think that means that people will forever not come back to church, but I do think there is a wrestling happening individually and collectively for churches about how we are to be in community and help navigate this time of trauma because we are not, we're in it now. Um, we are not past it, right? Yeah. We're going to get to that. Um, yeah, that's a great question. How do you tell pastors it's not their fault? Um, a lot of times I think what I encourage pastors, I say that, it's not your fault. But also I say, this is requiring a different kind of ministry of you. And it's requiring a ministry that you have not necessarily been trained to do. Right? It's requiring you to journey with people as a wounded preacher, as a wounded pastor. Because the thing about collective trauma is you are not outside of it. You can try to pretend to be, but you're not. You experienced it with your community. You experienced it alongside your community. Or even if you weren't with that community, like I wasn't here at PTS when the pandemic happened, but I can tell you I'm bringing that experience and experiencing it with my students here. We have a shared, some shared threads of experience, right? And I think one of the things that's important is to help be honest, and we're gonna to get to this, and name what is actually going on. Because here's the thing, I was gonna save this story for later, but it's perfect right now. Churches often respond more um, dramatically to little things because they don't know how to talk about this thing. So I have a friend who uh, is a pastor at a church, and she uh, was telling me that before the pandemic started, they had agreed as a session, as a church community, that they were going to move from having fresh flowers every Sunday on the communion table to what she likes to call permanent flowers. 
artificial flowers. But we, I love permanent flowers. And they were going to move to permanent flowers, right? And uh, the pandemic happened. Nobody was in the sanctuary, so they didn't invest in the permanent flowers. They're back now, and they finally said, you know what? We have this money from this thing. It was also, by the way, funded externally. It wasn't even church operating budget. They bought the permanent flowers. Permanent flowers show up on the communion table. They're gorgeous. I've seen a picture. And the church blew up. And she called me, and she said, Kim, Please tell me this is not about the flowers. <laughs> and I said, it's about 2% about the flowers. But the flowers become a point where we can start to express communally our frustration, our sense of unsteadiness around the loss of comprehensibility and coherence and time. Right? That those things begin to. And so what we end up doing, and we being communities, not we as pastors, but what we end up doing as communities is picking something else to get outraged about, picking something else to be the locus of frustration, of grief, of pain, because we don't know how to have these conversations. And so one of the things to say to pastors when I say it's not your fault is also it is now a new edge of your call to have honest conversations about communities experiencing trauma. Because I think that folks stop thinking it's the pastor's fault too when they start to recognize what actually is going on. Does that make some sense? Permanent flowers. Doesn't it make trauma more traumatic? Trauma? Great question. Does it, yeah. Can you hang on to that question? It's such a good question, and I'm going to answer it. I, I want to say, could it be that we didn't shift the, the topics according to what we were going through? We haven't had people leave news a parent, a grandparent, an aunt, all in one day. Yes. And what we still were trying to preach about uh, flowers. Or Absolutely. To do with all of this trauma. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And we're going to get, yes, amen to that. We're going to get to that in just a second. I want to offer, because I'm giving you the, the diagnosis, right? And now I want to offer you a suggestion for how we answer it. And you may speak to this yeah. later on, but secondary trauma. Yes. Is Absolutely. At an all time. Vicarious and secondary trauma is at an all-time high. We will talk about that in just a second. All right, let me, let me scoot to the next thing. Um, and so, actually, it's not the next thing. Let me finish collective trauma. One of the interesting things is collective trauma has two forces. It brings people together, and it pushes people apart. Now, how does it bring together? It actually brings people together in kind of what I like to call subgroups of the equally wounded. So for example, those who witnessed a shooting, those who lost loved ones to COVID, right? That there's kind of a binding together. And at first it's a really healthy thing, right? It's important for us to find folks in our community who recognize what is going on and, and, and share that experience with us. The problem becomes when it becomes so insular because the bar of entry into those sub-communities is very, very high. 
right? You have to have experienced the same kind of loss to be a part of that community. And I actually experienced this when I was doing interviews uh, with pastors who have experienced mass shootings in their, in their churches. A lot of them would repeat all the time in our interviews and our conversations, and they were wonderful, kind, generous people. You wouldn't understand. You wouldn't understand. And they're right to an extent. But also there is a kind of insular thing that happens that ends up pulling those sub-communities away. You see my little bubble. But also the main community doesn't feel like they can relate to them and there's also a kind of a push. So it's a push-pull. And so one of the things that happens is these gathering of sub-communities of the equally wounded. And this can happen both within communities and between communities. We see this a lot when there is a natural disaster and multiple communities are affected. You would think those communities would come together and help each other. Oftentimes that is not the case because they each have a, a very unique experience of that storm, of that, of that natural disaster. And so they feel like their neighbor can never understand or couldn't help, right? The other thing it does is it creates separating forces. It pulls communities apart. And it pulls them apart two fault lines. The first is unaddressed conflict or unresolved issues. I don't know how many of you have lived in a community that has had zero conflicts. <laughs> oh, I see no hands. One time one person raised a hand and I was like, what? Um, but a lot of times those things, those conflicts that were fine, we could kind of just live with, it could bubble under the surface, it showed up once in a while, that we live with those, those become gaping chasms under the pressure of trauma. That all of a sudden those little things that didn't quite, that we didn't quite agree on became separating to extreme degrees. I argue, and this is a Kim Wagner suggestion, and it's a total side note, and we don't need to travel down this road, but I think some of the exacerbation of our political division is due to trauma, right? That we've been able to kind of pretend these differences, you know, and have these conflicts that we just, no, okay, it's not that important, doesn't matter. Right, they become gaping chasm. It's not the only reason we have um, a, far, a far chasm, but it is an exacerbating cause in my view. The other thing that is there are fault lines created by proximity to the event. So you see I have um, kind of uh, concentric circles, right? There are those who, um, who are impacted directly, right? And I like to think about their, them being in the center. Did I just touch something? Okay. Them being in the center. And then you go out and the next level out is maybe folks who were in the building but unhurt. Right or who witnessed you know, who were in their houses, but their storms the storm didn't tear their roof off. Then you have those in the neighborhood who um, watched it happen, but it didn't happen on their street, right? And it goes out and out and out until you have people who are maybe empathetic but largely unimpacted by the trauma. And a lot of times in communities, we see communities break apart off these fault lines of proximity. Those who have 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 more direct experience of it. Um, kind of bond together, and then those who don't pull away. In fact, there's psychological um, research that says that we have a natural allergy to trauma, suffering, and pain. And so being in proximity to it is really hard. And so a lot of times our natural instinct is to pull away. 
right? And so folks who say, well, at least I'm not this, these folks will pull away. Those folks who said, well, I wasn't really impacted will pull away. And then you get language like, why can't folks just get over it? That happened two years ago, right? Because there's an allergy to that trauma. Now, this is a Kim Wagner original word, um, but I like to think about that combination of the crisis of time and crisis of coherence as an experience of narrative fracture. And I wanna be really clear, uh, not narrative destruction, not even narrative wreckage, um, which is a word that uh, 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 Thomas Frank uses um, in his book about uh, illness and, and trauma and illness. I use the word narrative fracture because I think what ends up happening is that our stories fall into pieces. And so when people are coming to us as pastors, as preachers, as leaders, as, as pastoral caregivers, they are coming with these baskets of fragments. And part of the work is some of those pieces will help, will eventually need to be reassembled. Some of them will get thrown away and there will be missing pieces that will have to be found, right? And the idea is, is and I wanna be really clear about this because I don't think people who are experiencing trauma or communities experiencing trauma are decimated. They still have the raw resources to build resiliency, to rebuild, to reconstruct, but not reconstructing exactly the same way it was, right? You do not put the Legos together in exactly the same way when they've been crushed to pieces, right? But folks are coming with these baskets. And so then our question is, how do we respond? Actually, I'm gonna... One of the things that we can do, I think, is offer language for what's going on. One of the sneaky things about trauma is that it steals language. It keeps us from being able to express, because think about it, if we can't make sense of it, putting language on it becomes especially hard. And I think one of the things we can do as pastors, as preachers, as leaders for ourselves and for our community is offer language. And the gift is that we also have language we can borrow, right? We have faith language we know how to borrow. We're gonna get there in a second. We have language of lament to borrow. We have language of confession to borrow until we can find our words. But one of the things we can do is we can offer language the second thing we can do is create space for honest reflection. Different communities respond differently to trauma, but many of them will try to jump into action, right? Well, it goes one of two ways. You either jump into action or you pretend it's not happening. Either way, that is not honestly taking time to reflect on what has occurred and what is going on and what is lost. And I don't mean just what is lost, like how many folks have died or how many folks have fallen ill or how many houses were destroyed. I'm talking about what has been lost is maybe a sense of security, a sense of trust in our community, a sense of trust in science to save us, right? A sense of invincibility or untouchability. A third thing we can do is I think we as leaders can model faithful traumatic response. And this goes back to that excellent question of how do you tell pastors it's not their fault? Part of it is, it's not that it's, it is that it's not your fault, but also how you choose to respond to it will, will tell folks, I'm with you in this, as opposed to I can control and fix all of this. 
And I think one of the things that we can do as ministerial leaders, as preachers, as pastors, as community leaders, is to model faithful traumatic response. We don't have to come in and say, here are all the answers to why everything is broken, and here is how we pull it all back together into a coherent narrative. Instead, we model lament, disconnection, the journey of sorting and rebuilding those narratively fractured pieces. I think the fourth thing we can do is facilitate communal connection, support, and empathy. And we're gonna talk a lot more about this um, in the workshop I'm going to do this afternoon. But um, thinking about what does it mean to help communities, those who are on those outer circles to lean in, and those who are in the inner circles to be open to those who are leaning in, be leaning out a little bit. But I think one of the things that we can do is try to push against the um, you know, centripetal forces of trauma in our communities by helping cultivate empathy, care, community, connection. And I think the other thing is, is that the way we do ministry can center us in the patterns of our life together and the stories of our faith. People have asked me consistently during the pandemic, what should we preach? Do I have to mention the pandemic every darn sermon we're two years in? I said, no, you don't have to. But one of the things that is important is to center us in the fact that our identity includes, but is more than the pandemic. That these stories of faith, of death and resurrection on which we stand are still central to who we are and are at the heart of our identity as opposed to the trauma story at the heart of our identity. And the last thing I think is we remind each other that we are not alone. Um, and I mean this in two ways. One is that we are not alone because we are doing this as a community and I am willing to journey with you. The other way we are not alone is because we have biblical guides. We have, our Bible is chock full of stories of people and communities experiencing trauma. We're actually gonna end our talk with an example of that. Um, but we have these biblical guides that tell us we're not alone, that remind us we're not alone, and that folks have ventured this way before. So how do we do this? <laughs> so earlier you asked a wonderful question about, so are we just supposed to tell people like, let's get it coherent again, right? Like, let's just pull it all together. And my answer is, please, no. <laughs> Instead, I think what we need to do is be intentional about our preaching and ministry in a kind of eschatological tension. That we are constantly living in a tension between brokenness, death and loss, and hope, resurrection and redemption. Right? That we're constantly living in that tension. And one of the temptations is to collapse the tension, one way or the other. Right? One way we collapse it is towards the brokenness and death end, and we just say, everything's terrible. We're just going to cry out to God and lament. There is nothing good in the world. We're just done. I'm out. And I have heard those sermons preached because those are heartfelt, honest, <clears throat> excuse me, good sermons. I don't want, all of this is done with the best of intentions, by the way. I, there are very few pastors, preachers I know who are purposefully malicious in the face of trauma. I said few. <laughs> um, but one of the temptations is let's just sit in the brokenness together, right? And we collapse it. The other way we can collapse it is towards hope, resurrection, and redemption. 
Don't worry, it'll be okay in the sweet by and by. God's got this. If you have enough faith, you'll just get through it. There's some truth to those statements. I'm not gonna deny that. But the problem is, is that that at best feels inconsistent with the community's experience. And at worst tells them that if they're not there in that space of hope and, and resurrection and redemption, then they are not welcome in the community. And that their lack of faith may actually be contributing to their own trauma. Jesus. Right? And so we gotta preach in the tension, we can't collapse it. Now, we may move and be preaching and, 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 and offering pastoral care and teaching in different places along that tension. So immediately after the storm hits, immediately after we go into lockdown, immediately after there's a mass shooting, we're gonna preach over towards that, that brokenness, death, hard side, but we're never gonna lose the tension with hope and resurrection, even if all we can offer is the promise of hope of resurrection already coming toward us, but not yet experienced, right? We can preach all the way over here, friends, but we're still holding on to the hope that is promised. And this is where scripture can be really helpful to us because it can recite those promises for us until we can claim them again. And then even on the nicest pre-pandemic Easter, <laughs> I pray that we still are able to hold the tension because Easter and resurrection only matter because of the brokenness of the world, right? And if all we preach is, yay God, and not life is still hard, there is still pain, there is still suffering, there is still trauma, we are telling folks, get on board with resurrection or you're out, right? And so I wanna invite us to think about what it means to continually navigate this tension in our preaching and in our ministry. It becomes especially vital in the wake of, of traumatic events. But I want to argue and suggest that it becomes important at all times. Because even if the community is not immediately experiencing a traumatic event, individuals are carrying trauma that you may or may not know about. And we practice this so that when it happens, we have a theology that can help carry it. We have practiced this language. It is held in trust for us until we can need it, we, until we need it, till we can use it. Y'all with me? Yes. Where does abject denial come in? Where does abject denial come in? Like, that, <laughs> out here, no. Um, no, but, but I mean, you know what I mean? Like, absolutely. Absolutely not addressing or pretending that something hasn't happened. Absolutely. Or ignoring yeah. reality. So there's two things that happen with abject denial. One is usually a, um, an unwillingness or incapacity to face what is actually going on, right? And a certain way of saying, um, and it is actually itself a trauma response. Uh, trauma responses often, uh, Jennifer Baldwin says that uh, uh, trauma responses are marked by either being too much or too little, right? It is a too little, right? It is saying it is a shutdown that happens. And so a lot of times it is creating safety for folks to be able to start to talk about name, admit, it's also offering folks language um, and recognizing I have more compassion since doing this work, <laughs> I have more compassion for people in denial because I recognize it as a legitimate trauma response. Just because what, what I feel kind of now is everybody saying like, okay, 
Let's get back to what things were before. Yeah, Let's we're gonna get to that. Back. We'll get to the, the, the problem of return, I yeah. call it. Yeah, right. how everyone said, like, we're gonna get back to what we were before. That is actually a desire to collapse over here. There is a deep desire, and I'm sure you have heard it if you have preached in this tension for long enough that somebody in your congregation says, thanks so much for the lament sermons, they're really excellent. Could we preach some resurrection? Yeah, I'm preaching resurrection. But resurrection only happens because of Good Friday, right? Hope only exists, true, faithful hope. Uh, Dr. Simmons talked about this yesterday, right? Only exists when we take seriously brokenness, death, and loss. And so a lot of times with people who are experiencing a sense of denial, it is inviting them in to that conversation with the willingness that they may not want to enter it. It is not something we can force on our congregation. You can never tell your congregation, guess what, you have trauma. <laughs> but what you can do is preach and teach in such a way that it creates a welcome space to have those conversations, for folks to enter into those conversations. Um, because there has to be, there's, uh, Judith Herman talks about the three stages of trauma recovery. And the very first one is establishing safety. And she means both physical, physical, but also emotional and spiritual safety. If folks aren't feeling safe, then they will often reject, deny, ignore what is actually going on. They might also do that out of that allergy we talked about um, from being in the outer circles, in which case what we're nurturing is not, hey, you too might have some of this trauma, but what would it mean for you to have empathy for? those having trauma, in which case it is also, again, an invitation towards cultivating safety together. Is that helpful at all? I was thinking more uh, institutional, but... Oh, yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm thinking about um, a previous slide mm -hmm. where you talked about um, there is a co-mingling of the past, present, and future. Mm -hmm. And... I'm thinking about this a lot, and I'm, I'm just wondering, I know we kind of just went through how to preach through this, but I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about how you navigate those different dimensions. And you, you, you brought up a story that I think is great about the communion plate. Um, as leaders, do we eliminate what we know are triggers? Mm. Or if not, Right? Mm -hmm. How do you kind of navigate that space where you know that it brings the community back to a place? Absolutely. Right? And I think, especially in the African-American context, right, there is a sacredness in holding the past, right? Like thinking about the past um, and working with navigating the present and a hope for the future. Mm -hmm. right? But I can see how there is a trigger and a trauma response there. And I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about navigating. Yeah, that's such a great question. I'm gonna to try to summarize it for our folks at home. It was such a brilliant question. What I heard you ask was kind of two pieces. One is how do you navigate and honor this disruption of time? Do you try to fix it? Do you just honor it, right? The second is how, what do you do about things that are potentially triggering? Do you eliminate them or do you engage them? Is that a fair? fair assumption of your um, summary of your beautiful question. The first is to say the disruption of time is not something you can fix, but what you can do is honor it and name it and identify it and identify when 
that communion plate, that chalice takes you right back, right? to that incident. And I do think one of the models that the African-American church offers us in trauma worship and response is to think about what does it mean to offer the past, to, to honor the past in the present in order to begin imagining futures, right? Potential futures. As far as eliminating triggers, we will never be able to do that. However, what we can do, I think as pastors, as leaders, as <laughs> preachers, is to kind of recognize when things might be doing that, might be triggering, either before it happens or after it happens. Um, and the thing about a trigger is triggers, um, and this goes back to this question we asked about, like worry about re-traumatizing a congregation. Re-traumatization only happens when people are caught off guard. But not talking about it can also be traumatizing, right? So if it's an elephant in the room and we're not talking about it, we have a problem. But we're not going to eliminate the chalice. Right, that's part of who we are. But what we can do is talk about how this chalice has meaning beyond the liturgy that is pre-written for us, right? And to name and identify those and to also warn people, whenever I preach sermons that include infertility, texts on infertility, texts on violence, texts that include uh, sexual violence, texts that include um, enslavement, right? I always offer a kind of invitation to self-care and I do that either before I preach, before I read the text, in the bulletin, in a newsletter, right? And so part of what I think we can do is instead of triggers are hardest when, they're, when they feel like they pop up out of nowhere, that we can't eliminate them, but what we can do is name them, honor them, recognize their power, and in doing so, in actually giving things language, we can disempower the monster. Um, well, Jeter, what's his first name? Thank you. I knew if I asked y'all, you would know. He talks about the power in, in crisis preaching of naming the monster. And, and I think that it's a simplistic book that he wrote. It's beautiful. It was great for what it was, and it's time. Um, we are living in a very different world than he was writing for. But I still think that importance of naming the triggers and identifying when what they do and when they do it and talking about that being willing to say, add into our liturgy. So what I recommended to my friend was, add something into the liturgy that is about that chalice and the history it represents. Because it does two things. One, it disempowers some of the trigger, right? It's less like, oh my gosh, right? Um, she also put a history of it in the bulletin for every communion Sunday. So folks could read it ahead before they even saw it come out, right? The second thing it does is for those who have experienced it, it lets them recognize the hurt, the pain, the memory that this is bringing up. And for those who are new, it allows them to lean in and be a part of this conversation, even if they weren't a part of that church before the fire. Does that, is that at all helpful? It's a great question. All right, I am running out of time. Would you all be willing to give me 15 more minutes, 10 more minutes? Okay. I want to honor your time. Um, I want to say that, that preaching in the tension, speaking in the tension, ministering in this tension, we have biblical resources for it. I love the Psalms for this, right? What I love about the Psalms is they will jump in that tension without trying to create all these nice little bridges, right? Woe is me, I am like a worm. I will praise God all the days of my life. The bulls surround me. God is faithful. 
right up against each other. Those psalms model for us what it means to hold those things in tension and not even have to necessarily make sense of them. That the, both can be true. The hope of God can be true even as the bulls of Bashan surround me. Right? I love this from, these are from my Lutheran friends. The idea of being simultaneously saint and sinner. Right? That we hold, we already have built into our theology an idea that we are broken yet redeemed people that we are sinful yet forgiven, right? We have this already. And of course we have the death and resurrection. I think a lot of post-traumatic preaching or trauma responsive preaching is what happens in Holy Saturday space. The death has happened. The event has happened. The resurrection is on its way, but it's not fully experienced yet. And so we preach in this Holy Saturday space. And let me be clear, it's not any Saturday, it's Holy Saturday, right? Because we trust that the resurrection is already coming toward us. And so we have our theology and our capacity to do that. And so I think it matters that we sit in this tension in both what we say and do and how we say it, how we talk about it. Because I think one of our temptations in our preaching particularly, but also in our teaching, in our pastoral care, is try to wrap everything up with a nice, neat bow. After all, most of us were probably trained in some sort of narrative preaching practice. And I love a good narrative sermon or narratively structured sermon. But the thing about that is it always insists that there's a resolution. And I think sometimes, especially in trauma-responsive preaching, preaching and worship and ministry that happens in the, in the aftermath, in the wake of a traumatic event, that it might be okay and even important to hold open space for questions, for uncertainties, right? for narrative fracture in the actual form of what we say, not just in, 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 in the form of what we say, not just what we're saying. Right, because the last thing we want to do is say, "Hey, guys, like it's okay that things aren't holding together. The grace of God is still present," and then end the sermon with, "And therefore, Amen." Wrapped up in a bow, those two argue with each other, right? And so we want to honor narrative fracture in both ministry and form, uh, in both uh, content and form. Excuse me. This is where I want to land us. I think we as leaders have a biblical model for navigating this and for cultivating these kind of safe harbors for our communities and for ourselves. And I, I can think of no better group than the Israelites to give us some guidance on this. Every time the Israelites were in the wilderness, they were experiencing collective trauma. During the Exodus, they were experiencing the collective trauma of processing uh, their, their time of slavery in Egypt alongside being homeless and alongside uh, getting lost for 40 years. <laughs> right? When they were being sent into exile, they were dealing with the collective trauma of their temple being destroyed, their cities being overthrown, being sent out into exile. When they were returning from exile back home, they were dealing with that disruption, that trauma of exile. So I want to argue that some of the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites might be a guide for us alongside a lot of other things, but this is the one I wanted to do today. And I think there's four lessons that they can teach us that will help us to cultivate safe harbors both for ourselves and for our communities. And the first is that 
They remind us to take seriously the painful, traumatic reality and grieving what has been lost. I mean this in two ways. One is giving language right to the hurt, the pain, what has been lost that, you know, not just the loss of people, but the sense of security and hope and, and, and the future. There's also a grieving of a way that was that will never be again, right? Um, the way that we can no longer worship as we once did. The way that our churches will not function in the same way they did before. And grieving that loss. I think that's one of the hardest things for institutions to do, is to recognize that with every new thing, no matter how exciting or good or rich or wonderful it is, we still need a harbor of space to grieve what will no longer be when that new thing comes. And that's not unfaithful. That's important. The, the Psalms, the prophets all do that work, right? The second thing is that we want to do that lament. This should sound familiar with attention. While also grounding ourselves in who we are, God's claim on us and our formative sacred stories. There is a temptation to get lost in the grief or to allow the grief to become our identity, to allow the, the trauma or the traumatic event to become a mark of who we are. It is part of our story. It is not all of our story. And so I think one of the things, and we see this again and again, my favorite example is Psalm 78. I will utter sayings from of old, things that we have heard and seen that I will tell to my children and they will tell to their children's children. And then it goes on, Psalm 78 is the second long, longest psalm in the Psalter. Don't try reading the whole thing on a Sunday morning. Your congregation will fall asleep. But it is a story of the Israelites' journey with God. It is literally storytelling that's reminding the generation and the generations to come of who they are, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and who God is. And that that is more central than the experience of exile they're experiencing now. Right, Psalm 78 is partly, is, is usually identified to be written or at least used around the time of exile. Right, that this, this, this stories, these, these central stories. The third thing I think they can teach us is to try to cultivate truthful memory. And I love this one because I think this is such uh, such an issue. Um, so Exodus 16, manna given in the wilderness. Those of you who know your Bible well will remember that it doesn't start with God just being like, they look hungry, here's some manna, right? I'm paraphrasing. Um, <laughs> but what is actually happens right before that story is the Israelites go to Moses and to Aaron and they say, oh, we are so hungry. We are suffering. Things are terrible in the wilderness. And if only you had left us in Egypt, and here's the quote, where we sat by our flesh pots and ate our fill of bread. BS. I've read the book. Right. They did not, there was no way they were sitting lounging by their flesh pots and eating their fill of bread. They were slaves in Egypt. God heard the cry of their oppression. They were not lounging around enjoying a feast. It's a cultivation of false memory. Memory of a golden age that never was. 
And we do this too, and this especially happens to communities experiencing trauma. How many of you, I know this is, how many of you have experienced people saying, oh, before the pandemic, mm, worship, glorious. Pews, full every Sunday. <laughs> Choir, always in tune. Sermon, transformative every Sunday. No, it wasn't. I preached some of those sermons and I know they were transformative every Sunday, right? And I can, I can hear the choir, but we have this kind of false memory that we cultivate of the before times. And one of the things that we can do to cultivate safe harbors, both for our communities and for ourselves, is to nurture truthful memory. Because what happens is, is if we create this false golden age that never was, it makes this moment feel that much more impossible. Right? The recognition of we've always been growing through challenges. We have always been facing tests to our faithfulness. We have always struggled to be faithful or worried about money or worried about butts in the pews. Right? So cultivating faithful memory, truthful memory. And then the last thing is to acknowledge, name, and recognize, and even grieve a little bit, that there is no true return to how it was before. When the Israelites returned from exile and showed up in Jerusalem, I imagine there's an expectation that it would feel like the good old days but they could stand on the same street corner with the same people and even try to have the same conversation and it would not be the same. It's like my student who was crying about communion. She was sitting in the same courtyard on the same chairs with the same people and it wasn't the same because there is no true return because the world has shifted and we have shifted. We are changed forever because of trauma. Back to that narrative fracture, right? It is not about taking all those pieces and, and, and like a puzzle that you get for Christmas, putting them all in the right order so they make the same exact picture. That's not possible. Because you know what? Some of those pieces are now going to feel worthless. Some of those pieces are gonna be so mangled, they're not gonna be useful. But also we're gonna have some new pieces to add in new learnings, new experiences, new recognition, new honesty about what has gone on. And so we rebuild a new future, but we also have to be honest that in, we're never going back, right? And what did the folks in exile who returned from exile do? They rebuilt the temple and they read their sacred stories. They found the scroll, the Torah, and reminded themselves who they were and whose they were and what it meant to be a faithful community in the midst of trauma. So I'm gonna stop here. Um, I want to say, I hope this was helpful as we think about kind of diagnosing the storm and cultivating honest and, and, and realistic and safe harbors both for us and our communities. Um, if you would love to join me, I'd love to see some of you this afternoon for our um, workshop. We're going to talk a little bit more about kind of the role of the pastor um, and thinking about some of the specific challenges of um, 
ministering in these uh, trauma-soaked days. So thank you all for your attention, for your patience, for your kindness. I appreciate it. <laughs>